Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 417. Um, I hope you're all well. This week I'm joined by an amazing guest, Mr. Daniel Mays. As you will hear from the chat, I've been a fan of, of Danny's work for a long, long time, but our paths haven't crossed, despite having a lot of of mutual pals. So this was a real joy to just jump on Zoom and get into. Danny's got a new series of Temple just started, um, and a new series of Code 404. Is that on its way, or have I, I watched the latest one? Either way, there's loads of Code 404. And yeah, just loads of really good stuff. He's been doing this a long time and it was really good to have a chat with him he's exactly as l- lovely as everyone had had promised me he is before we get into it thank you for everyone for all the love for recent episodes last week's edgar wright episode got a lot of love there was a bonus episode last week with paul chowdhury previous guests if you're a fan of sam who's whose guests i've had that he's worked with so v- vicky mcclure david graham has been on three times now i think um just loads of really good people paddy considine i think he comes up in conversation in this one uh riz ahmed certainly comes up in conversation so yeah loads of really good guests over the years plenty for you to to sink your teeth into and speaking of good guests next week's guest is katie wicks who's been in loads of amazing things has got a book on its way out but she's in Stafflet's flats and series three of that started last week and Man, tears of laughter. I was watching it with Chris Glasson of Hardcore Listing and the Drunk Cast. I was helping him doing some decorating and we took a break to watch an episode of that and honestly, just absolutely in bits. Oh, while I'm here, actually, thanks for all the love a couple of Fridays ago on International Stammering Awareness Day. If you missed it, I was on two different ITV news slots. I hosted a a panel for Stammer who are the British Stammering Association. And we've got a campaign at the moment that I'd really appreciate it if you all go and um, sign the petition. It would make a huge difference, actually, if you really could. In fact, on this episode, I'm not even going to push you towards Patreon or my web store for merch. Just if you could just sign this for free, that'd be a really good thing. Um, If you look up Stammer, S-T-A-M-M-A, and on their website, they've got the petition. And we just basically pushing for more representation of of this fluency in tv film and radio three to eight percent of children have a stammer and one percent of adults have a stammer yet that isn't really represented in tv shows and stuff and on and on the on the radio and the whole campaign is about just normalizing it all i think a lot of kids me i know i i know growing up as soon as i found out that um Rowan Atkinson had a stammer, and that was the reason for his iconic pronunciation of pronunciation of the name. I'm stammering on it. Baldrick, Baldrick, um, the the of that ball was because of his stammer, and that was hugely inspirational. And the more we can have that, the better, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, I'd really appreciate it if you could all sign that 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 petition. We're going to be putting pressure on the BBC, on Netflix, on Amazon, on HBO, on all these places to just yeah improve the representation there. Anyway, I'll stop rambling on about that because that's not what we're here to talk about. But if you could go and sign that petition, I'll love you forever. 
in fact i did a podcast the 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 british stammering association podcast essentially which is called around the block i did a two episode podcast where i was the guest and it's my favorite guesting spot on any podcast i've ever done so go and give that a look as well but i'm going to shut up because you're here to listen to to Danny Mays, and rightfully so, because he's an absolute legend. This is episode 417 of the Distraction Pieces podcast. Is it? Yeah, it is. Um, With Danny Mays. Beautiful. Right, I'm here today with Daniel Mays. How are you, sir? I'm very well. All good. Uh, my daughter's off school sick and I've got two builders upstairs that are putting in a new sink. Oh, mate, that's got to be a, an, an intense week you're having then. Yeah, it's just a busy day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if there's if there's kids throwing up and builders shouting from the top of the house, that'll be what it is. It's all great background, mate. It all, it all, you know, it all adds to the experience. It gives the, <laughs> it gives the absolute vibe. Have you been j- during this this year or so? I know you've been working Code Four Hundred Four, all sorts of other stuff. Yeah, but yeah, how's it all been as a family man and as an actor? It's kind of there's there's a mixture of worlds there, right? It, there, there is a clash of worlds. I mean, film and TV, that world has kind of carried on as, as normal as much as it could do, really. Yeah. I mean, once they were able to prove that, you know, it was a safe space with the COVID testing and everything else, yeah, there was there's just always that demand for content. So I can't complain in terms of not being busy. I was very lucky that I had, you mentioned Code 404, and I have another show called Temple coming out. Yeah. Both those shows got recommissioned, so I filmed those back to back, and um, Great. so that that really that that kept me busy. And in terms of family, we we've just muddled on through like everyone else. I mean, it's, yeah. there's a, a semblance of normality. I think to come back into things now, but as we approach winter, I mean, I don't know. Cases are going up again, aren't they? So yeah, um, yeah. I just hope you know that sort of people that are admitted to hospital, that doesn't rise because that's what we're all worried about, isn't it? Yeah, of course. With all the strain on the NHS. So, I mean, hopefully with the vaccinations, we've kind of over that worst of it anyway. Yeah, f- fingers crossed on all of that. It's all a case of, of, of seeing how it all unfolds, isn't it? I think I've talked about this a few times, but I was shooting in um, in Canada for a big chunk of the, uh, of the pandemic. Yeah. And again, I think the film and TV industry have got the money and resources to do it yeah. safely you know a lot of a lot of industry didn't a lot of industries su- suffered m- massively obviously it all ends up c- coming out of budgets and and and, and coming <laughs> out here and there but still it, the, there were ways for us to get on with it with <laughs> regular testing with masks with everything else to to do it safely so we got kind of an early experience of that i mean you know yeah the argument is like tv sets are like the safest spaces really um I had to just, we just came back from a, a, a three-day wedding in Portugal where yeah. we had to do all the COVID testing and the, the, all that stuff ourselves. So yeah. I was going, oh, my brain was exploding with going, oh, my God, I've got to do this, as opposed to giving it all over to a production. Yeah. Because you're right, when you're on a TV show, you're being tested two, three times a week. And the thing that, that to this day now, I mean, I've just I've just filmed an episode of Inside uh, Number 9 with... Reese Smith and Steve yeah. Pemberton, which was great fun. But even now, 
it's a bugbear of mine that all of the crew are in those really restrictive masks still. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas the kind of actors are swatting around saying, you know, don't mess up our makeup. And I just find that I, I, it doesn't sit well with me. I know it's really, you talk to crew members and it's really uncomfortable for them. So, I mean, throughout all of this. Yeah, all day long, often on hot sets with lights and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. it's very, very tricky for them and very uncomfortable. And um, I take my hat off to all of the crews that I've worked with throughout this pandemic because I just think they are, you know, they've re- they're, the, they're the engine behind these productions. They're the ones that have to keep the sort of uh, thing in the air. So I, have t- I just tip my hat to them. They've been absolutely spectacular, all of them. Well, let's stick on that subject briefly because there's big things happening at the moment, particularly in, in America with unions and, and the industry generally standing up for the crews and standing up yes. for – because this has always been an industry that I – talk, I talk about it to actors all the time that doesn't really acknowledge – family or or time off or holidays or gaps it's kind of you've got to do what you got to do but yeah the thing that people and and from the outside you can go yeah but to get to the level of insert hollywood name here you, you need to do that but what people don't realize is well if that hollywood actor is doing a 12 hour day the crew is doing at least a 15 hour day if not a 16 yes. hour day because it's all good yeah. to say i'm willing to work r- really hard they're on set before us and they go home after us. So it's I'm, I'm, oh, I'm really yeah. pleased to see that there's a lot of people taking a stand to say, no, we need to lower, put strict limits on the length of days, on, on, on crew having breaks and holidays and so on and so forth. I think it's so important, right? So, I mean, I'm married to a makeup artist, uh, yeah. Lou. She doesn't, she doesn't do it much now, if I be at all, but I mean, I, I, I know, you know, from close hand how hard sort of, say, for instance, makeup artists work. You know, they are yeah. always the first to arrive and the last to leave and listening to moany, insecure actors all day. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, um, you're absolutely right. Those rules have to be put in place to sort of protect crews because, um, like I said, without them, it's uh, the whole thing just uh, falls down flat. So, but in America, though, they just shoot forever, don't they? Yeah. They just keep going and going and going. On and on and on and on. It's kind of a constant thing. Well, I mean, I've got a a, a listener question I'd like to play you, and it it, oh, yeah. it it feels relevant now as you've ju- as what you've just been speaking about. So let's see. If, hopefully, you'll be able to hear this. Hello, Danny. Uh, it's only me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Other half on screen. Uh, yeah. Sorry, Roy. <laughs> Hope you're well done. Uh, my question is to Danny. How did you meet your other half, your much better, beautifully, wonderfully, beautiful, gorgeous human being that she is, Lou? How did you meet Lou? And how did you end up going on your first date? Did someone give you a nudge? Was there a Cupid within the meeting of your wonderful, much better half? Um, That's my question to you, Danny Mace. You're gonna, you're gonna have to help me out with that. I've got no idea who that was. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, hard to tell. The there is Stephen it? Graham, aka Silla Black. I was worried about um, coming on this on on this conversation because yeah. <laughs> Stevie speaks so highly of you. Always refers to you as Danny. I'm like, I don't know you yet. I need to be referring to you as Daniel and being. P- polite but no don't don't call me daniel i feel like i've done so wrong in my mind you're very much danny so yeah 
Yeah. I had to ask Stevie if he had any questions for you. So yeah, let's let's hear this story of um of, of Stella Black Stephen Graham. The first time I ever worked with Steve was on a show called Top Buzzer. It was right. the I think yes. it is the only MTV comedy drama yeah. thing that was that was ever made. It was written by Ed Allen and Johnny Vaughan, and it was um it's kind of got a weird cult following now. But it had a, it was a cracking experience. I was sort of fresh out of drama school. Steve had done uh, Snatch, so he was the big sort of name in it. Um, Ashley Waters was in it. Uh, James Lance. And um, it was all about a group of stoners, and I was playing this character called Colton, who was like the hanger-on that used to come around and just ponce weed uh, 24-7. But we filmed it down in um, Three Mill Studios in East London, and um, that was the job that my wife was... Uh, she was the makeup designer on it. Right. Um, i never forget it. I had to... I was... Uh, I got told to go to the makeup room on day one because I had to meet the designer and talk about the look. And I sat down, I, I knocked on the door and Lou's assistant came out. She says, oh, she's just in there with Stephen at the moment. Can you give us 10 minutes? I said, yeah, yeah, no problem at all. So I sat down on the floor. I got my script out. I was learning my lines like a diligent young actor. And then all of a sudden the door flew open and there was Stephen Graham. And he went, bloody hell. She went, she's gorgeous. She is like that. And then, um, and then literally Lou popped her head out round the corner and the rest was history. But I, we had an instant connection, Lou and I. But being a bit shy and a bit timid, perhaps, I didn't have the front to uh, to ask her out on a date. And then I kept going to Steve, I can't. He said, just ask her out, ask her to the pictures, ask her for a dinner or whatever. And I said, I can't, I can't. And Steve was my hero and he stepped in and did, did the, uh, the matchmaking. And here we are, 2.4 children and a dog later and two builders putting the sink in later. It's like... Uh, <laughs> It's all his fault. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's great. It's 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 beautiful to hear. And I, one of the things I, I, I love about researching these podcasts is tracking r- relationships across careers. So with Stevie, yeah. with there's numerous other people I'm going to be bringing up. But I guess before we get to all that, what was your route into acting? Because you're an Essex boy originally, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is that true? So what was your upbringing and then, yeah, your route into acting, I guess? Well, I guess, Scooby, yes, I was like, I pr- I knew pretty quickly that I wanted to act or perform as as such because, I mean, I was I was like, um, people probably still say this about me, I'm, I'm the class clown. I was always jumping around doing impressions. I'm one of four boys. I've got two older and one younger, so... It always is that that middle child syndrome. Both my two older brothers were exceptional sportsmen. They were great footballers, cricket, um, my little brother is as well. So um, I don't know. I was never as good at at football as as those two, all three of them, actually. And then, I don't know, it was a thing of maybe wanting to try something else to to try and be recognised. But I was always jumping around doing Frank Bruno impressions or Prince Charles impressions. And <laughs> and then it all started where my mum took me to see Michael Jackson at the Bad Tour in Wembley. And it, that became right. my party piece. I was it, was it was a light bulb moment. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then I locked myself in my bedroom and mastered all these dance moves. That became my party piece. And like every school disco, everyone would make a circle. It would, you know, be this big thing. From there, that led to a local dance school, stage one. That then led to a Talia Conti stage school. And then eventually I, I went on to RADA because I just I knew I wanted to just be a straight, serious actor. Yeah. So um, 
I actually did a hell of a lot of training. I mean, Italia Conti in comparison to Rada, they're absolutely poles apart. Do you know what I mean? They're there in terms of where they're coming from and the sort of box of tricks they give you. But um, I guess both were sort of beneficial. I've always been a really physical actor, even now with the parts that I play, like even a lot of the stage work I do. You know, the physicality is always really important to me. I guess that probably comes from the dance training you got from Conti's. And then you could have the flip side of that where you're doing Stanislavski and all that at Rada where you internalise a character. So I felt like I got a very a long and very well-rounded prep in order to make a career out of it. I love it. And, and, and the variation, I think, is key because what people often struggle to realise is what makes us unique is us as individuals. So it's about... Mm learning as much as you can and finding the bits that connect with you and work with you rather than here's how you do it and then you just become oh, yeah. a, a replica. I remember the, f- the first two acting gigs I got, the feedback I got was the reason you got it is because you've not gone to stage school. They like, they like the rawness, they like the unpolishedness. Yeah. But I was then like, but I still want to learn stuff. I don't want to just rest on my laurels. So, so yeah. for me, it was a case of hunting through as much as I can to go, right, what do I connect with and agree with? And what can, yeah. can I learn and then go, right, no, I think that's that's Ponzi bollocks. I, I, I think that's, that's exactly. no, nonsense. And pick it apart and find what works for you, right? That's I, I'm completely on the level with you there. You you take what you need and you forget what you don't. And it's, um, you know, you do so many strange things, don't you, in terms of trying to get it into a character or, or you're taught at drama school, like Animal Project. I can remember being a peacock in Russell Square yeah. <laughs> in, in, in a movement class with all these work, you know, like office workers eating their sandwiches, watching me be a peacock, be a tree, Danny, or, you know, like Lab and all this movement stuff. Yeah. But, you know, I think the endeavour of experiencing stuff like that, even though you might not necessarily take that on board, the fact that you can then dismiss it is, in a way, you're learning your technique as you go along. You know, you're finding out what works for you. And, and I, I mean, it's great that you say that thing about rawness. I mean, I've always tried to hold on to the initial thing that made you want to be an actor in the first place, that sort of fire within, that rawness. And I think, you know, there are a whole host of actors that I've worked with that haven't had any drama training, and that's great. Their instincts are so on point and they're so raw. Oh, what's the phone going? Um, that's stopped now. Do you know what I mean? You can just do it. You can do it that way. And there are others that want to have three years of formal training and and build it up slowly. So th- th- there's all it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Yeah, there's no right or wrong there. The thing I love, like you mentioned, Laban, and the, th- the thing I loved <laughs> when I was doing some movement training stuff was the amount of stuff I learned. I was like, oh, I did that in this role. Now I yeah, know yeah, why. Yeah. Like the movement psychology of it. Now I know why I did that. But I was doing it naturally, so I don't need to overthink it. I don't need to to get in my yeah. own head on that. That was coming naturally. But the first Laban or the first breakthrough I had in a Laban yeah. um, study thing ended up. We had to pick someone's walk to mimic and try and understand it. And I'd been hanging yes. out with, with Stevie two, two days before, so I chose Stevie <laughs> and genuinely had a breakthrough because at first. It was a poor imitation. And the more we walked yeah. around the room, in that, that typical thing where you're starting to think, oh, this is all bollocks, isn't it? I had a breakthrough. Yeah. I clicked and realised that Stevie is led by his upper body rather than his legs. And he's very, yeah, he's yeah, a force yeah. of nature up here. And I was like, I was just doing 
um, a fairly offensive Scouser walk up until that point because <laughs> that's it. And then I started to repeat it and repeat it. Had massive a breakthrough. So, yeah, I, I love that shit that you can kind of go, this is a bit nonsense, but there's probably something in it. There's a reason it's there, stuck yeah, there's around. Meth- there's method in the manders. But yeah. I, I love all that. I mean, just to literally people watch is fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, like, I actually haven't been on the tube. for. I've, I said to my wife the other day, I don't think I've been on the tube in, like, two years. It's ridiculous because, you, you know, you're working or even when I, I recently did a did done way to at the old Vic and they weren't allowing us to go on public transport, so we're all jumping in Alison yeah. Lee cabs. But I love going on the tube because you just people watch. Yeah. And, you know, you can spend the entirety of the um, journey just, you know, certainly checking someone out and all of their mannerisms and your then your imagination kicks in and you think, where are they going? What are they up to? What do they do for a living? Any any individual, the, uh, as long as you study them carefully enough, they become like this box of tricks. And I think that's yeah. that's what makes a great actor. I think is is you know how good you are observing people and taking yeah. that on board. Completely, I couldn't agree more. Well, I guess the first time you kind of came to my attention properly was in a film that's. Oh, that's some mates of mine made, and um, oh. I thought I'd dig out the DVD. Hey, there's a blast with, of the past with Riz Ahmed, and I met Aaron Creevy through Riz. And oh, I think right. you, you guys did something really fucking great there. And on on to um, a welcome to, 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 to the punch to as the punch. well, because yeah. there was some real micro budget stuff, but really exploring, like sticking on sh- on Shifty for. For, for now telling these stories in a non just washed over stereotypical way you know yeah, it yeah. is it is a crime story essentially but it's so personal and so intimate between two maybe three characters really and, yes um, yeah so how was that to kind of, of work on it at, at that point obviously i've skipped through the kind of eastenders and the bill because that's literally every <laughs> british actor um, yeah yeah that's which again course, I, I love it it's 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 like part of stage school you get your experience of cameras and sets through eastenders and the bill and then yeah yes. yeah so how was it to work on kind of a low budget film but with everyone clearly having a passion and and a talent i guess that, that script was um it came my way i mean that initiative from film london it was their micro budget yeah. microwave scheme and uh, I'm not sure if they are doing that now, which would be an absolute tragedy because uh, around that period there were some absolute gems. There were some wonderful films made, uh, a wonderful new talent discovered, and one of which was the brilliant Iran Creevy. And yeah. I it literally fell into my lap that script, and it was a straight offer. And I, I tell you what, my my agent was like, "Darling, it's so low budget." It's not worth doing it. And I went, no, but let, let me read it because I read everything, you know, consider yeah. it. And it was just the most complete, n- nuanced, uh, powerfully written and funny script I can remember to that point. It was really distilled down into this beautiful friendship between, yeah. you know, the, these two best friends, one of which that had, had obviously fled and, and gone to Manchester and Shifty, Riz's character, was there sort of stuck in that environment, still knocking out drugs and getting into a whole world of trouble. So to me, when I read it, and testament to how Rani directed it and how well it was made, it was it always spoke to me like a sort of a, a Ken Loach or a Mike Lee film. Yeah. I mean, I just saw that you put up the, um, 
the DVD, DVD yeah. poster. You've obviously got hoodies and guns and you know knuckle dusters and all that. Yeah. And I, I, when I, I, I look at it and I go, that film isn't that. It's the great thing about that film. It's, it's, it is violent, but it's only violent in the very two and very last frames of the film. It's the build-up and threat of that violence that that gives it a great sort of tight sort of tension that runs all the way through it. But but Rani had an absolute ear for dialogue and comedy. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I we had a screening of it years back. It was the ten year anniversary, and it was great to be in the room. You know, Riz has gone on and 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 done exceptional work, but He's it was great right, to see everyone again. And yeah, and. Um, I guess I think Riley was talking about maybe we'd get to a point where he would write another script, a completely different story, but with that with those same actors, those because yeah. that would be really something quite fascinating to do. Uh, you know, with all that length of time that's passed. But um, I'm very, I'm immensely proud of Shifty. It, it punches well above its weight, and to this day, it's got a, it endures. You know, if something's truthful and it comes from a place of absolute love i think that really endures always when you watch it back i completely agree and i think you've nailed it with kind of it feeling almost more like a ken ken loach film but yeah that's what i kind of loved about even how it was marketed because at that point you were getting a lot of you were having adulthood you were having all these different really good uk crime type thugs hoodie type things which are great in their own rights um yeah yeah but this kind of would lure people in under the premise of that. And then you're getting this beautiful, intimate relationship about one friend moving on and the other kind of secretly w- wishing that they could move on and all that kind of thing. You're getting this really intimate thing. I think they re- what they wanted was to tap into that adulthood urban market. So, yeah. you know, because those films did brilliantly at the box office, didn't they? Smashed it. Yeah. They made so much money. And Shifty didn't didn't. I mean, it wasn't a commercial commercial hit, but it's one of those films that over time endures. And 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 like you say, it's 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 the sort of friendship at the heart of it that kind of draws you in. Um, mm. the, the great thing about that also is that with it being his first film, and with it being you know it was a it was a hundred grand budget in three yeah. weeks. It, you can do it because the whole film takes place over one day, so you don't have to fuck around with different costumes and the locations aren't vastly different etc but when you have a low budget film like that you have uh, you had complete utter creative license so you had you he could cast who he wants he had carte blanche you know and you had danielle brent in it you had the brilliant jason fleming in it and i have to say one of the best turns in it for me was from my good friend jay simpson who's the builder trevor right it's just a wonderful He's obviously addicted to cocaine. He's lying to his wife that he's going out to work and he's lost his job. Um, to this day, that's one of the most exceptionally moving and desperate performances I've seen. Jay's absolutely brilliant in that. But of course, then when, you know, he got a lot of hate for it, Iran, he got BAFTA nomination and all the rest of it. And then he goes on and makes Welcome to the Punch. And he's ve- what was so sweet about Ronnie was that he was loyal to those yeah. key actors. But yeah. of course... Then you've got Ridley Scott producing that, and the money goes up, and then obviously you get you get like James McAvoy and Mark Strong as the leads, and we all shunt down one peg, which yeah. is absolutely cool. And, <laughs> yeah. and now it all works. I totally get but it. Still, um, Peter Mullen, Daniel Kaluuya, yeah, yeah. Johnny Harris, yes, Daniel, yourself. Daniel Kaluuya was in there. Yeah, it's one of a hell of a lineup. I, m- I remember the 
the premiere of that and it was a proper rainy day in London and it felt perfect because I remember speaking to Rani yeah. about that and him saying that what they wanted to do with Welcome to the Punch was shoot London the way that New York has been recorded in yeah, film and yeah, LA yeah. and San Francisco and all these iconic skylines of these big action films. Yet yeah. L- London has got that, but we always go a little bit lock stock or a little bit snatch or whatever else, all these things. And he wanted to go, no, I want to show London as this scaling yeah, I mean, a, a metropolis. I think, I think and he totally he achieved that. But yeah. Big shout out to Ed Wilde, who was the cinematographer on Shifty and then went on to Welcome to the Punch. But it was always Ronnie's remit was to not copy Shifty, was to make... I mean, he was influenced by filmmakers like John Woo and those big yeah. sort of 80s American uh, cops and robbers films. And he really... I mean, the great thing about Ronnie is so ambitious that he, he just... He doesn't want his last film to be anything like the one that he's just done before. Yeah. His next film, I should say. So the way that he shot London, particularly around the Docklands area, it just, was... Yeah, it looked that opening motorbike chase scene yeah, in the, the Docklands yeah, and all fantastic. that. It just looks amazing, right? You know, why hasn't yeah, yeah. this been used more in in big cinema? No, and I don't... I, I sort of... I'll tell you, I, I can't think of a, another film shot in London that makes it look as sort of uh, spectacular and film noir as that. You know, <laughs> there's probably loads. Now, I've said that, but I've put no. yourself out there. But I it really is... A, it's a spe- Visually, it's a spectacular film to watch there was a load i remember there was that huge gunfight isn't there with um i'm in the hotel room with jason fleming and marks there and there's and it all goes into slow motion and you literally see the bullets ricocheting from the wall yeah. it's fantastic johnny harris is in there as well the brilliant johnny harris yeah. it was a, it was an again another amazing ensemble to be part of it's a funny one because i remember watching it and loving it and then going back preparing for for this and seeing all the people who are in it who I probably didn't realise at the time or wasn't aware of at the time. And now, as you say, that's, that's a, that, that cast has got stronger and stronger, yeah. Yeah, you now, you're now Daniel Kaluuya, Oscar, Oscar winner, aren't you? And all these yeah. things, it's amazing. It's n- no joke. Um, so was that the first time you worked with Mark Strong? Because obviously you've gone on to work together in Temple. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was... Um... Yeah, he shot me, didn't he? He killed me in the Ministry of Sound. <laughs> I, I plunge over the top railing. Uh, yeah, um, that was the. And I obviously, I remember actually going back. He gave me a lift in his car back to the unit base. And I just remember him being an absolute sweetheart. I remember him being just very personable and easy to talk to. Um, but we only had that very, very, very small scene. Liza Marshall, yeah. Mark's wife was also producing Welcome to the Punch. And they then have formed their own company, Hero Productions, and Temple was their very first show out of the blocks. And, um, yeah, and, and that offer came in, and I've had an absolute ball on Temple as a show, not least because it feels like a show that is unlike anything that's on at the moment. Um, you can't categorise it. It is an absolute box of trips. Particularly in the UK. Again, it feels like it's got yeah. that American approach more of just making this big, this world that you can, yeah, I don't know, lose it's yourself totally in. It's totally unique. It's totally, yeah. it's dark, it's funny. It's there's. It's not a medical show, but there's operations and things in there, medical operations. Yeah. There's, there's heists, there's criminals, there's a love story. And I get to play this incredible character who's sort of Mark's sidekick. You know, he's the high-flying uh, London surgeon who's trying to desperately save his wife from this 
disease and, and keep her in the underground operating theatre underneath Temple Tube Station. And I'm this character, Lee Simmons, who used to work or has access to this underground space and allows him to, to keep yeah. his wife down there. And they start this illicit relationship of nefar- you know, nefarious criminals and people that don't want to be on the grid that want medical operations to take place. It's a great dynamic. You know, they're a great double act, Daniel and Lee. And to get the opportunity to work up close and personal with Mark is, I mean, like you mentioned, I worked with him before, but I mean, we're firm friends now. He's just an absolute, I mean, to me, he's just your absolute perfect leading man. He's so hardworking. He's absolutely diligent with everything that he does. And, you know, I can't think of a better actor that has instant sort of screen presence as Mark. Because he's a minimal actor in many respects. And yeah, yet when you yeah, watch, definitely. when you're working with him, you're thinking he's hardly doing anything at all. And then you, you know, you end up watching it on the screen and everything is going on. He's got a great connection to his inner life as a character. I mean, you know, for any young actor that wants to sort of learn from sort of someone at the top of their game, just look at that performance from Mark Strong because it's absolutely stellar. And we're really excited to be getting, you know, the second season's about to come out. Yeah. So... And anyone who's a fan of the first season knows this absolute humdinger of a cliffhanger at the end um, without, you know, I can say because, you know, he's keeping his wife down there and all of a sudden at the very last frame of the piece, her eyes open and then it ends. Now, the great thing about season two, season one was very much constrained to Valkyrian, which was the Scandinavian version of the show. So we we adapted it into the the English-speaking language of it. Right. They only done one season. So with season two, which we're about to drop, we have absolute carte blanche to take the story any which way we want it to go. And they had an amazing writer's room. And, you know, I love season one. I think season two just takes it up like a couple of notches. It's absolutely because it's the bunker is very much still prominent in the story. But I would say the whole thing just explodes out onto street level. There's much more expanse to it. There's uh, additional characters. We've got the brilliant Michael Smiley in there. We've got brilliant a great legend. character in uh, Risa Farms has joined. Fantastic. A whole host of other brilliant actors. So um, it feels like it's a show which has now really found its feet. It knows what it is. And the stakes, if they could be raised anymore, they certainly have done this time. I love it. And I love seeing your excitement ab- about it all. <laughs> Well, we've waited so long for it to come out. It's yeah. like, we I remember having initial script readings literally just before the lockdown. Yeah. And um, everything just stopped, you know. Yeah. And, um, I mean, Temple 2 was one of the first shows to come back. But, it, I mean, we, we've had it in the can for a while now and Sky have delayed it. Obviously, it's an autumn show, you know what I mean? The nights are drawing yeah. in. So, um, it just feels like it's been a hell of a long time for it to come out. But... Um, all good things come and those away. <laughs> Damn right. How, how, how was it getting the initial script like that f- for Temple? Because it's one of those, it is, as you say, it's so unique. It's one of those that I'd imagine you kind of read, and you've been in this game a long while. You'll know that yeah. you, see, you see something that unique, and it's either going to be fucking great or fucking awful. <laughs> Like it's, yeah. it's, it's going to go one way or the other. Like On paper, this is amazing, but on screen, this is either going to be amazing or an absolute nightmare so how was that to get that and then how was it when it all came out great in the end 
You, you're absolutely right. It's <laughs> it is brilliantly bonkers. There's no question about that. Yeah. And it's but what it came down to was, I mean, we had the great Mark Strong leading the show. That certainly helps. But it does come down to a question of tone and how you want to play the scenes. And and yeah. I think if you pushed it too far into the sort of extreme comedy, certainly with my character, it would just unbalance the whole thing. We have to play it completely and utterly straight. The, these characters in this show find themselves, it's the predicaments that they find themselves in. Yeah. They're ill-equipped to deal with these scenarios and that's the thing that gives it its tension and its drama and its and its dark comedy as well. But what the, what the, the great thing about the show is, is it's so brilliantly written that there's like four story strands. They're like, they are literally like, you know, the sort of passageways of a heart, the arteries. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds a bit weird. I don't know where I'm going with this. But it's like the arteries, they just go off at a tangent yeah. and then they interlink and then they always come back for this amazing climax at the end of the, like the big finale at the end of each season. So it's kind of like a puzzle. I mean, it's, it's, um, there's a hell of a lot going on with it and you can never, you can never ever second guess Temple. You never know quite what's going to happen next. But it's so brilliantly made by Hera, Sky are behind it, they have the resources and the finance to really believe in the project. And um, I'm just, I'm super excited. Honestly, if you thought the the, the ending of season one was um, dramatic, you, you ain't seen anything yet. So um, it's good. I can't wait for it to come out. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm going to rewind again. And speaking of kind of interlocking stories and drama and tension, for my money, the Red Riding trilogy is one of the greatest things to come out of British tv cinema in of all time and it's another one where the cast has aged incredibly well just the ones <laughs> i noted were paddy considine andrew garfield sean bean sean harris david morrissey wow. tony pitts eddie marson robert she wow. and peter mullen and your good self of course so how was that one to work on because that's proper dark and proper serious that there wasn't a lot of room there for any any light relief but a hell of a story and a hell of a, a project. The great Warren Clark was in it, the late great Warren Clark. Yeah. We should also mention him. who yeah, was an definitely. absolute joy. I had a couple of drinks with him. You just knew from the off that this sort of big thing was, was happening because the ambition behind it in that it was three parts, three, di- three separate films, and yet about obviously the same thing. But there was three different directors, three different yeah. crews, it was shot on different formats. So in a way, they were very individual films, but all about the same subject. And, and, and I remember that it, was, it wasn't a money job. That was the other thing, is that all of these actors, the list of actors you went through there, everyone was kind of like on the same dough. There was no real dressing rooms. We were all getting changed on the, the makeup truck with a one-costume truck. So you're, you were really just specifically doing it for the passion of the piece and yeah. the quality of the scripts. It was it was Tony Grassoni hadn't adapted David Peace's brilliant books. I always think about Red Riding. There's a fourth book, isn't there? And I don't quite know. There was always talk that they were going to do the other one, and I think it centres around Eddie Marzan's journalist character. Right. And I don't know why. Maybe it was a budgetary thing. They could only do a trilogy, but... Um, I always, I, I thought it was, um, 
it, I mean, I, I was sort of a young actor then. I'd only really, I'm relatively new to it coming out of drama school. So it was just one of those, um, it was one of those amazing pieces to get. And I think I'm probably right in saying it was cast. I think Nina Gold cast it. I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I owe so much to Nina. She's obviously Mike Lee's casting director and I did a couple of films with Mike yeah. early on. So, and she's always been a massive fan of mine and championed me as an actor. So uh, I've got so much love and respect for her. And I think I'm pretty sure um, it's probably, it was probably cast by Gina J now. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was, uh, um, it was just a great thing to do. And again, like, excuse me, it was just the part. It was just amazing role, which was loosely based on the Stefan Klitschko character, you know, that was the sort of village idiot as such, who was, who was wrongly imprisoned in real life for these uh, um, abductions and murders of, of young girls. Yeah. And I did a ton of research on that. <clears throat> it was one of the most heartbreaking miscarriages of justice you could ever read and investigate. So I did my homework with it and, and just kind of applied it to the character. You know, he, he was a kind of, it was like a boy of, I don't know, 12 trapped in a man's body. And that's yeah. kind of how, how I went about it and played it. But I do remember counting my lucky stars, doing scenes with, you know, the likes of David Morrissey and Sean Dooley, just like grade A stellar actors. It was yeah. a wonderful thing to be part of. Absolutely amazing. When I first started off or moved into acting, I had no agent or anything, and I just I hustled a meeting with Nina Gold because oh, right, yeah. she has just done so much good shit. And we just hung out and chatted, and that's how I ended up in Taboo with Stevie and of course. So, so much stuff off from there. So, yeah, I've got a, a lot Brilliant. of love for Nina as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it makes me – I want to watch Taboo again now. And I also want to – I haven't watched Red Riding since they came out. I mean, that that's worth another uh, watch, isn't it? It'd be weird to see it after all these – Years. How did you find? Did you love working on Taboo? You were fantastic in that, I've mate. I loved it. Yeah, it was an absolute dream. And as you say, you straight out of drama school and getting to work with all those guys. I had that. It was my third ever acting gig, and I'm on there with Stevie wow. and Tom and all of these fantastic. amazing people who not only are people I absolutely idolise, also happen to be people who are willing to hear your questions and give you advice and give you yeah. a little tip here and there and help you out and take the uh, take you under their wing. So, yeah, that was a, a life changer. Yeah. I mean, you, I'd, I'd, I'd give my right arm to work with Tom Hardy. I think he's yeah. – um, I've worked with Charlotte, his wife, and so yeah. I've met Tom on a number of occasions and he's always so easy to get on with and um, yeah. just seems like a lovely, like, down-to-earth bloke. And But I just – I think, you know, he's one of those actors that – of working at the moment where he genuinely totally loses himself in, in his roles, doesn't he? Like you can't, you can't see Tom Hardy anymore. So I think he's a proper chameleon, isn't he? So I'd yeah. love to work with him. I found a proper huge rare admirer for, of his work. It's rare for people of that level, right, to get actors like Tom or Christian Bale or, or, or Leo DiCaprio even, these people who will proper, you don't just go there and see... Tom Hanks, for example. Like, I, I think Tom yeah. Hanks is one of the best ever, but every time Tom Hanks is in a film, I'm like, oh, I love Tom Hanks. I'm, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm lost in the Tom Hanksness of it. So yeah. I think we've only got a few at the moment who are that big, but you do. Each role, completely different, completely, yeah, you're absorbed by the character that they're, that they're, they're giving to you. 
Oh, totally. Yeah. Some actors like are, are like that, aren't they? they? They're so good at doing one thing, and we all buy into that. And it's tremendous. And, and they, they too have their place, don't they? Do you know what I mean? But yeah, I, I've 100%. always wanted to try and, you know, it's all about versatility, isn't it? And trying something different and trying something you haven't attempted before. Because you just yeah. have, you just keep it fresh that way. Hundred percent. Well, th- there's still a few, a load of things I wanted to talk about, and we've not got too long left. But um, yeah. I need to touch upon a, a line of duty because it feels like it was around your series that it started to become this fucking monster of a show. This huge. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not accrediting it to you. It. I'm not accrediting it to you. But but no, you were at that start, and it kind of that was the series I remember watching, and thinking this is getting. A huge. I think of it with Peaky Blinders as yeah. well. It was around series three, maybe that it was like, oh, this isn't a little BBC show anymore. This is becoming a big old thing. Yeah. Like, how was that to work on and be part of? Because it's it was... interesting that Line of Duty and Peaky Blinders have had the same trajectory, haven't they? Because they, yeah, they they were both ticking like they, over. I don't know. Really right, good. Yeah, yeah. They kind of started the same time, and I think they've probably done the same amount of um, series now. No, I mean, I I always I'm. You know, everyone, if I get stopped on the street and people go, it happened to me this morning, walking the dog, um, these two old ladies go, you're an actor, aren't you? And I go, yeah. And they go, what have I seen you in? And you go, uh, it's probably Line of Duty. And they go, that's it. It's always Line of Duty. <laughs> um, which is kind of like I'm super proud of because it was literally one episode. So it definitely yeah. made its, it's made its mark. It was just a, honestly it was I, I think probably to this day it was the best on paper the best role. I mean I had to audition for it, uh, but but as soon as I'd read it, I I'm an old flatmate of Craig Parkinson, so I'd seen the first two series with Keely yeah. and Lenny James, and then you get the call. So I knew the show, uh, and then my agent phoned. They said they want you to go in. This is the call you want to get from your agent. Uh, Danny, we're sending you a script. You've got, they want you to audition for the new lead in Line of Duty. And I was like, holy shit, you're kidding me. I love that show. It came to me. I read it. And then, of course, I read he guns someone down. He's an armed response unit leader. Yeah. He guns someone down in the first two pages. You're like, holy shit, what's going on here? Before you know it, you're thrown into like a 10-page interrogation scene with all these speeches. And I'm just going, this is like, already I'm like, this is the best part ever. Yeah, and then all this other stuff comes on, and you find out is it all this child abuse thing, and and then by the end of it, your heart's breaking for this like complete psycho, and you're like, and then you get shot at the on the last page in the neck, and you're like, what? That's the end of it, and I'm like, holy shit! So I go into the audition, and I meet the director and Jeb Mercurio, and the first thing I said was just like, right before we say anything, before we read or start, like, what's happening? Is he does he make it? And Jeb went, I'm really sorry, Danny. No, that's it. We're going to pull the rug and kill the lead character. And I was like, oh, Jesus. I was just like, but I knew it was, in terms of that episode, it was an amazing uh, character to take on. And I knew I, it was one of those auditions where you go, I'm not going to let them say no to me. This is it. I've got to go in. Yeah. They're not going to take no for an answer. So I gave it double barrels and I pretty much learned the majority of that interrogation scene. Because that was the audition. Learn as much as you can of yeah. the interrogation scene. And I was up wow. all night for about a week learning it, and I, I pretty much had learnt it. And so 
I was off book, which was quite amazing because it was a very difficult thing to learn. Yeah. And then I was lucky enough it fell into my lap. Do you know what I mean? I know they were looking at other actors as well. But, you you know, they're the sort of parts you just go, it's a golden opportunity, Danny. It's a great, you can really cement yourself and, and create something really memorable. And to, to open the third series, albeit just one episode, it was it was great. And it really, as you said, it just, you know, the, the, the sort of roof came off and the shows yeah. it then moved on to BBC One. And, I mean, the, the ratings they get now are just, just astronomical. So... I feel very blessed, very proud, do you know what I mean, to be in that family. I mean, they at the NTAs the other week, we got a sort of special recognition award and it felt strange because I, I hadn't, I, that was about six years ago and there yeah. I was at the NTAs walking up on stage, waving <laughs> to everyone and I'm thinking, I'm not, I haven't done this for years. <laughs> it's not, it's not, you know, it, it was a, it felt like a lifetime ago I played Danny Waldron, but it was, it was really lovely to see Simon Heath and everyone from World Productions yeah. and and Martin Comston and I mean that was a, the thing I take from Line of Duty was just how much fun they all were, like Adrian Dunbar, Vicky and Martin and Craig because you know they were such a tight unit and yet um, I was really coming in playing this ballsy out there character and they just really embraced me. It was really. Yeah. And one of the greatest nights I've had as an actor was one of the greatest days filming I've had as an actor was that interrogation scene. I think yeah. without a doubt, it was the second to last day. I only had a two week shoot on it. That was the other thing. Cause I was doing a play it's at mad, the national. Yeah. So the whole thing was condensed in two weeks. I, I didn't know if I was coming or going, which actually really helped the performance, that intensity yeah. that I, I, I couldn't really pause for breath. We just had to get everything shot. We shot the interrogation scene all day on me first, had lunch, turn around on all the guys. And um, it was like doing a, a piece of theatre. It was a really extraordinary thing to experience. And um, to sit across from Major in Dunbar and all of them was great. And he leant over when we wrapped, he went, right, meet me at the tapas opposite the merchant in Belfast. We filmed it in Belfast. He said, we're going out. So we had a lovely tapas meal. We went into the merchant and he said, I'm going to buy you the most expensive bottle of red wine and we're going to drink this together. And we got royally pissed it. and it was great. And um, it was just a beautiful day. Yeah, fantastic. That's beautiful. And that's it's really interesting to hear and think about. I, I touched upon like Davey taking me under his, his wing on taboo. And one of the things he did a few times was when it was the close-up for his character, for his dialogue, it moved yeah. me to make sure I'm in the background because he'd kind of said, right, like, right, right. the size of your character isn't often down to what dialogue you've got or this or that. It's how how reg- how how people get used to s- seeing you and you're there a lot and yeah. stuff like that. So, so my character grew as the, as the show went on, but it comes to mind because it's mad to think that you were only in one episode because in the end, your file and your photo and everything else is yeah. came up regularly. So in my mind, <laughs> you were in l- loads, series after series almost, because it comes up a lot. And it was two weeks. <laughs> I know, so it's mad, isn't it? It's testament to how good a writer Jeb Mercurio is, you know, and yeah. he's, he's, he's second to none in, in, I mean, how he knows that world of policing. I mean, he's got, obviously he's got advisors helping him, but the layers that he applies to it in, in, the overall arc of where it's going. Uh, you're right. I mean, Danny Waldron 
permeated all of that third series. I mean, it was yeah. like he was he's, the ghost of him was was throughout that whole show. And like you say, we all have pictures always end up yeah. on yeah. that board. So, um, well, that's it. It's interesting. No, he it's was right. the lead in that series, but he was only in one episode. But it was yeah, still it was, it was the weird. lead character was, as such. It was Man. so weird because um, the press flew out, and you have to do round table interviews. And I had to do this very strange thing where I had to lie to yeah. the British press yeah. that I was the new lead throughout the whole series. And, so and it's a I think surprise. Said, but aren't you, aren't, you, aren't you going to do the Red Lion at the National Theatre, Danny? And I went, um, yeah, but that we do that in rep, don't we? So I'll be coming back doing Line of Duty in my, in my off weeks. And, and, and the great thing is we, we kept it all quiet. That was the other thing. In this world of sort of social media which was obviously around then, we kept all the twists and turns quiet. So it was a massive rug ball that when they killed me yeah. off. It was just insane. I love it. I love it. Well, as I said, there's loads I want to talk to you about, and I'm not going to get through all of it, but I do want to talk briefly about 1917, just because of the uniqueness of it. I'm just going to let my dog out. I'm just going to let the dog out one second. Go ahead, mate. Go on, there you go. There you go. She'll be clawing at the door and all that. that. <laughs> there you go. Live podcast. Oh, what kind of dog is it? We've got a little toy Maltese. Beautiful. She's like a ginormous hamster, really. <laughs> I love it. I love She's it. adorable, though. Yeah. Not very not very Danny Waldron. It's not a very Danny Waldron dog, is it? <laughs> no, it sounds great, though. <laughs> um, yeah, 1917, just it jumps out as such a, a unique project to work on because of the way it was made because of the way it was shot it's yeah. not it's not i'm coming in on this day and doing these two scenes i'm coming in in mm. a week and picking up this scene because of the nature of it seemingly being a, a one take as such how was that to, yeah to work on and be part of it was unusual in that the gimmick of it is that it is all one continuous shot obviously it wasn't shot like that um yeah. it was big sections one take, lots of extras, um, and the whole thing is spliced together, which I actually, when I first watched that film back, it was absolutely seamless. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was probably the most immersive, guttural experience of a film I've sat through. You, I think you don't get a break. A you don't get a break, do you? It's just constant heart no. racing throughout. There's no breather. Completely. I mean, I mean, what what is extraordinary about... I mean, I had like three days on it, and we filmed it on Salisbury Plain. I was the... Sergeant Major at the beginning of the um, of the film. I actually have the opening line of the film, and then the boys have a little walk and talk, and then they join me, and we we go down that trench system. That was the thing that blew yeah. my mind was that when I first got there on Salisbury Plain, they'd literally dug a, a First World War trench wow. system. I mean, it, the sort of level of detail and the enormity of the set was just mind blowing, uh, and the sheer weight and number of of extras. And there's this huge onus on you when it can't, when the camera lands on you to not get your lines wrong and not fall down in the mud and not fuck the whole take up because if you do, you've got to go all the way back and reset and start again. The pressure but of it that, was, right? It, I'd done, it, was, it was just an absolutely joyous experience. I'd worked with... I hadn't worked with Dean, the young... Uh, there's the two young boys in it. Dean, mm. uh, he was uh, new to me. He was an absolute joy. But I'd done, a, I'd done The Caretaker with George Mackay at the Old Vic. Right. A number of years before, and he's an one of the nicest kids you could ever meet, and super talented. So it was fantastic to work with George again, uh, and of course I get to you know work with 
the genius that Sam Mendes. And it was, yeah. what was amazing about meeting Sam Mendes, I'd never met him before. Again, it was something that came through Nina Gold and it was all of these Benedict Cumberbatch and Andrew Scott and Mark Strong. We all had just these little bits that were adding to the story. I said, yeah, of course, I'd give my right arm to do it. But I got into my costume in the first World War costume and said, you've got to come and meet Sam in his trailer he just wants to say hi. And I had this amazing first meeting with Sam in, in that he explained the whole inspiration behind the film. We talked about the character. But not only that, Scooby, it was like, Danny, it's so great to meet you. I finally get to meet you after seeing you in that play, this play, that. And wow. he realised that he'd seen me on stage. And I, I, I never really knew, do you know what I mean? It yeah. was like, I always just say, you know, it's a great example for young actors, um, just participate in whatever project it is. If you're unsure of something, if it's a play or whatever, you just, or if it's a small role in something like we've just spoken about, you just yeah. never know who's watching. Do you know what I mean? And it's about yeah. just getting in there and doing it. Um, but he made me feel absolutely at ease. And and then I just, and the other thing about it was because it was one take, if the sun was shining, we weren't allowed to shoot. If it was raining, we weren't allowed to shoot. Wow. It had to be overcast because of the shadows. And so, in actual fact, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of waiting around. It was like it was like being in warfare in the trenches. There was a lot of waiting yeah. around, and then all of a sudden, the sort of siren would go, and they'd shout, "Right, get into place!" And 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 we did take after take after take. And um, every at the end of each take, Sam would have a sort of he, he was so particular with the notes that he was giving, and you just felt like you were in the presence of an absolute maestro. You know what I mean? It was. Yeah. Um, it was a real, it's just an honour to be, you know, a small cog in an absolutely fascinating film. It was wonderful to be part of. I love it hearing hearing how that all was shot and the and the pressures of of, of weather and whatnot. It just feels like the yeah. amount of pressure to get your lines when they get to you just must be intense, right? It is because what what the overwhelming thing about that film and the thing I will remember probably most was how incredible the technicians were, how incredible. I'm talking about how imaginative and how extraordinary the cinematography was. Yeah. And I've completely forgotten these names who shot it now. He's completely gone. I'm sorry. He won an Oscar for it and everything. But in terms of how the camera moved, so if you remember the very beginning of that film, it starts out in a field and then so the camera's just pulling back on a, on a pole and then my legs come into frame and I go, hurry up, get your kit and come with me. And then the crane yeah. comes off and it's and then it becomes like handheld and it slowly moves but it moves back and then it comes round the corner. And by the time we get to inside the trench, and then we finally meet Colin Firth's character and they get told what the mission is, the cameras then at the beginning of that sequence begins to push in even more. And as it pushes on and pushes on, the roof of this set was slowly just dismantled so the camera could move through. So yeah. the whole thing was like, I would recommend anyone to watch the behind-the-scenes sort of documentary of how the film was made because that is absolutely uh, fascinating. And, and one, I mean, in, in terms of cinematography, it has to be up there with one of the greatest films ever made. I, I really believe it's a, uh, it's a marriage of those, those two forms, how technically how good it was. And at the heart of it was this beautiful relationship between the two boys. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and just before we move on, Roger Deakins was the... There you uh, go. 
the man <laughs> weaving his magic there. Um, How could I forget Roger Deakins? Well, to wrap things up, <laughs> uh, uh, let's talk about Code 404 because I love it. It's wonderful. I remember Stevie going on to it after about three or four of the heaviest, most dramatic roles in the world. <laughs> and then I'm like, so what yeah. are you doing now? He's like, it's like a comedy thing with Danny. And it's uh, it's it's like a comedy Robocop, <laughs> essentially. I was like, yeah, yeah. All right. And then it's wonderful. Like, how's that been to work on? It feels like a yeah, real I think, joy I, to be I, there. I, I, I came in and saved the day for Stevie. After This Is England and the Virtues, he, 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 if anyone needed a comedy, it was yeah. Stephen Graham. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I was a little bit like that as well. I mean, I think we're sort of predominantly known, both of us, for sort of serious acting, serious straight roles, isn't it? Um, yeah. All the heavy lifting stuff. And this, but I, I love, I love doing comedy. I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, it's in many respects, it's a lot harder. I feel often find because it's, it's there's always that onus on landing a joke. You've got to recognise the beats, the timing, all that sort of stuff, as well as making it truthful. But they approached me for it, and it was literally at that stage it was just a pilot. They'd seen me in a comedy called Plus One and, and thought of me for it, and I, and I read it. And like my agent said, listen, he gets killed. He's a police when he gets killed. And I was like, we've done that. We've been there, done that, got a T-shirt. And they were like, no, 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 no. But he comes back as a part man, part robot. And I said, oh, God, that sounds awful. But let me read it. And then yeah. I read it. And it was, and it's written by Daniel Peake. And he's, I'll put him out there as the best gag writer at the working at the moment. Because what he's so good at is that there was, every time I read a page, I was laughing out loud. I was like, gag. Gag, gag. And my wife was in the kitchen. She said, you're going to do it then? I went, yeah, of course I'm going to do it. This is so <laughs> funny. I mean, it just made me howl with laughter. Then I met them and they were like, and I said, who are you thinking for the part of Roy, the, the partner? And they went, we don't know. And for some reason, Stephen just went, popped into my head because we had such a great time on Top Buzz all those years ago. Yeah. And um, he's always been busy and I'm busy. and But we sort of kept in contact. And I said, listen, let me send you this. And see what you think. If you like, if you like it, we'll make a pilot and see what happens. And he 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 came back and and I, and I think after all the heavy roles we've both done, it's just great to get in there. It's actually great to show the comedy world that Danny Mays and Steve Graham can stand up and be counted because yeah, it, it, in many respects, I find the comedy world is a bit of a closed shop. It's yeah. do you know what I mean? I feel, yeah. And I yeah, and yeah, I definitely. and I. There's a mentality sometimes in this country where you guys can do that thing and we'll do the other. And it's like, hold on a minute. There's great comedic actors that are brilliant straight actors. I mean, I've just literally worked with the brilliant Steve Pemberton and Reece Shearsmith. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've worked with Steve Pemberton a couple of times. He's a phenomenal serious actor. Yeah. And I think sometimes cast directors have to have more imagination in you know, making those two worlds cross over a lot more. Because, you know, we're all capable of being as versatile as we want to be. And I think that's what Stephen... I mean, because Stephen plays Code 54 completely straight. Oh, that's it. It's, a, plays... it's a classic straight man, funny man scenario. Yeah. But because he's so straight in it and so truthful, he's ridiculously funny in it. Yeah. And so he's one line that's just, just had me on the floor. And I think it's just a great combination and we've got... A lovely supporting cast in Anna Maxwell Martin and Michelle and 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 Rosie Cavaliero and Richard Gadd. It's just an absolute um, joy to to do, and you know we're going to make a a third series of it. So I love that'll it. be a lot of fun. <laughs> how how hard is it to 
to nail your takes because as I said Stevie playing the straight man in it perfect but also he loves a laugh it's it's not easy in yeah, this, yeah. there's so many bits in that where I'm like I guarantee as soon as they've cut it they've been pissing themselves because as yeah, you say yeah, people yeah. play it so so straight but again <laughs> it's only human <laughs> it is the, just the writing's so good and yeah. um we have there's a great there's always great outtake reels that they make at the end of each yeah. season which are I mean, don't get me wrong. It's it's fucking exhausting. Code four. I remember we got halfway through the uh, the first series, and we were like, "Yeah, we'll do that little six week comedy together. This will be fun." We got halfway through it, and we he turned to me and went, "This is fucking knackering because <laughs> you're in you're in every day, every scene." Yeah. Uh, but I couldn't I couldn't wish for a better actor to do it with than Steve. And, yeah. Um, we have a giggle with it, you know what I mean? I mean, after battle now, is if you've been doing it 20 years like I have, you sort of, when you commit to a project, half of it is like, you know, who's in it? Who am I going to be spending hour upon hour, day after day with? Yeah. Am I, am I going to have fun with them? Am I going to, you know, are they a diva? You know what I mean? Not there's a lot of divas, but you know what I mean? You sort of have to weigh it up. Who's making yeah. it? Who's the director? And is it is it going to be a joyous experience? Because... You know, they'll edit the thing together and they'll do all the promo and put it out. But, you know, arguably the most important part of the experience is the joy of making it. 100%. uh, Do you know what I mean? I think it's why you see people work together more and more throughout their careers. It's like, I know I can spend six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks with that person. You know, know, obviously I know they're good as well, but both of those things are equally as important. What's going on on the screen and what's going on off the screen and... In those down moments, I think that's right. And even even if you're doing a really, I've often find if you're doing a very heavy drama, uh, often those sets are quite. Maybe it's just me how I am on set, but I have to remain quite buoyant. I mean, when we yeah. made Des, for example, for ITV, yeah. the Dennis Nilsson thing, I got on. I, I knew show. a lot of the actors playing the police. Yeah, you know, like Ron Cook and Jay Simpson and and all these people. So, but it was actually. It was, you know, in between the scenes, it was it was quite buoyant, and there was a lot of piss taking and banter. And then poor David turned up as Dennis Nilsson. He was like, "What have I walked into?" But no, it was great. Um, it was, I think, you know, you just have to keep it light, don't you? Because you know, I'm 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 a real believer in, you know, when you're in the scene, keep it in the room, and when they shout cut, you're out of it. There's the actor and there's the character, and that was always a discipline way back when that Mike Lee always taught me. Yeah, you know, I'm certainly not a method actor. I'm certainly not gonna, yeah. you know, not that there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm not gonna go and live in a forest for a week or anything <laughs> like that. Yeah, do you know what yeah. I'm saying? Well, I I love it, and I appreciate a, a, your time, mate. I'm gonna let you get back and make sure the plumbers haven't haven't made a mess <laughs> yeah. and and the I kids are all right. Hopefully, the hot tap's the hot tap and not the you yeah. know, all that stuff. Yeah, you don't want to find <laughs> out that's that's the the, the wrong way around. Temple yeah. and, and Code 404. Temple on its way, Code 404 already airing, right? Yes. So, yeah, all available now. Is there anything else ahead that you want to mention or are allowed to mention? I know that's always a tough one. What have we, I've mentioned Inside Number 9. Yes. I've got a lovely little show called Magpie Murders, which is coming out on BritBox, which they seem to be doing so much content yeah. now, which is a lovely um, murder who done it with Leslie Manville, which we shot over in in Dublin, which is um, a lovely another piece coming out. So, yeah, 
And who knows? That's the great thing. You never know what's from the corner, do you? That's what I, I, I love about it. Moving from, I used to do music and that was, I'd have my year planned out. I've got my tours right. planned. I know when the album's out. It took yeah. me a while to get used to, but now it's kind of that, like people are reading, even now, people saying, have you got much lined up for next year? Not a thing, but I know yeah. I know there's going to be stuff. So it's kind of... I think it's sometimes when we'll you see. have downtime to really embrace that, to re... re yeah. Like someone said to me, Danny, you're working too much. Really enjoy those moments where you're not working. They're the time, they're family time. Replenish yourself. Because yeah. you need that. You need you need that sort of recharge, don't you, to go again. Completely um, agree. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, mate. Pleasure. And I'll let you get back to the family. I'm glad we got to do this, man. As I said, yeah, we've yeah. had a lot I've of really mutual friends it. for a long time, but our um, paths haven't yeah. crossed. So Hopefully we'll meet in person one day. I'm sure we will. And we'll 100%. work together. Let's get yes. on it. Let's get on that. Um, All right. In fact, as we wrap things up, I need to quickly just def uh, detour and say, how great is Craig Parkinson? Again, oh, top bloke, yeah, top yeah, yeah. actor. You mentioned him earlier, and I wanted to, to, to go into it, but another one that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Top lovely boy. fella. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Well, thank you very much, all mate. Right, bro. It's been a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Take it easy. Bye-bye. See you, mate. All the best. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Mr. Daniel Mays with a surprise appearance from Stephen Graham there. I hope you all enjoyed that. Thank you for tuning in. As ever, I'll be back next week. As said, if this is your first time listening, delve into the back catalogue. Either way, if you're listening now and haven't gone and signed the Stammer petition, just search Stammer, S-T-A-M-M-A, and I'm sure you'll get their, their website and you can link onto the petition there. Really appreciate if you did that. Um, it means the world to me, obviously. So, yeah, thank you very much. I'll talk to you all next week. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.